This is in 1 Kings 18, 1 through 19. So if you have your Bible, we're in 1 Kings. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land they were to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him and bowed down to the ground and said, is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there is not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they could not find you. But now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here? He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring your 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Good morning. The Lord is good. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That's our determination. It's our privilege to praise God with our lives and to live in his presence. Lord, Lead us close to you. Hold us near your side. Draw us close, Lord. Fill us as we wait upon you. We've come to you today as needy people. We've come to you as those who are dependent, utterly broken before you, and looking to you to feed us. You are our God, our Lord, our Shepherd. We turn our hearts to you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word speaks to our souls. My prayer, Lord, is that each person today will hear the word of God you have directed to their particular heart need. Draw each of us near to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn your Bibles again to 1 Kings chapter 18. 
We're continuing a series on power. We're looking at the life of Elijah and Elisha to show the kind of power that God really wants to demonstrate in our lives and through us in this present age. Power can be exhibited in many ways in the life of a Christian. It can be stepping out in faith and doing something that's really uncomfortable, like a first time thing out of my comfort zone into insecurity, hoping that God is going to be there for me. It could be power to resist saying something that's just longing to be said at the tip of my tongue. And I choose to be gentle and meek, that power under restraint. It could be power to overcome sin. Christ came to set us free and to break the bondages that hold all of us. That's the power of the gospel, the power of the resurrection unleashed in our lives. It could be the power of trusting God for our needs. And in the meantime, not complaining, not wondering, not taking shortcuts or looking to other sources, but trusting in God for those provisions. Today, I want to talk to you about the power to confront. In the gospel, we have this good news that God has entrusted to us to proclaim to the world. It came through the angels at the birth of Christ. It's been given to us. Paul says, how can they hear without a preacher? Blessed are the feet of those who proclaim the good news. We are the means by which God disseminates this wonderful message of life. But this power to proclaim is often met with resistance, right? People like, I don't need that. Don't lay that guilt trip on me. You know, and on and on. So the very thing that could help them is a thing that we resist initially. We fight against until God wrestles with us and brings us down and shows us there is no other way. So I'd like to talk to you today about the power to confront. And with that confrontation, I'd just like to say a few things. Is that courage and boldness to speak the message that we have doesn't mean that we hit somebody over the head with a two by four, does it? You know, listen to me. Get this straight. You need Jesus. You're going to burn. Yeah. Truth is sometimes very hard to receive, and we make it even harder. It doesn't mean that we're insensitive to people. It doesn't mean that we disregard the relationship that could become the context through which they come to Christ. It doesn't mean raising your voice and speaking a little louder and a little stronger so that you can be heard. It's not a one-shot deal with somebody. You know, just put it out there. Just throw that gospel track and did it. You know, my responsibility is over. No, it's a relationship. It doesn't mean that you don't care about the outcome of how that person receives what you have to say. You don't have control over it necessarily, but you do care about the outcome. And so sometimes we 
share Christ through tears because there's people that just say, I don't want it. I like being caught in this bear trap. You don't like it, but when you try to take that trap off of an animal that's been caught, they don't sometimes understand. They just bare their teeth and want to bite. You care about the outcome. It doesn't mean that you don't listen and you don't try to understand that person's history, their, their story, their context, and why it's so hard for them. But this is what it may mean. It means that you are motivated and compelled by love. And if you really don't love the person you're speaking to, step back. Don't share. Because they'll catch that you don't really care. It means that you'll speak clearly and directly to a person. Not using sarcasm and all kinds of other manipulative ways of trying to get people to listen. It means that you refuse to be intimidated to silence because that person is so resistant that you're afraid you're walking on eggshells and you're just, don't think today's a good day. Not today, not today, not today. And go through years of not todays. You're not intimidated to silence. It means that you step up to the plate and you do what it takes to build relationships. Sometimes it's asking for forgiveness or addressing issues of unforgiveness. It means that you get around to it. You don't just keep putting it off. The gospel is always shared in the context of relationships. It means that you say yes to God when he prompts you in your spirit to step out. I've got some stories of people that I haven't stepped out and shared with. That even to this day, I have regrets. And I say, is this next week going to be like the last week? Maybe not. Maybe this will be the week where this message gets to this heart. It means that though you have your own style of communicating to people, you still do get the job done. Everybody is not like, well, I went to breakfast with Mike Sadzinski. I don't know if you've ever been with Mike at breakfast. Our waitress heard the gospel within the first 10 minutes. We prayed for her and her family. He knew her children by name. And I'm sort of climbing under the table. And she's responding to Mike like he's an old friend. And he never had met her before. You know, I wish I could do that, but that's not me. I don't share Christ that way. But it's good. You have your own style. But get the job done. Use the style, the way that God has crafted and developed in you to do it. It means that you're convinced of the truth of your message and that you're going to speak this because it's not your interpretation of the Bible. This is God's message. This gospel is his idea. It is the only hope for humanity. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Do you believe that? I wonder if I believe that all the time. If when I'm in the context of people that don't believe that, that I'm as certain about that message as I should be. Are you? If you are, 
then you won't shrink back when opportunity comes. You are and I am to speak on God's behalf. I know it's important for us to just live the message. And if everything else fails, use words. You know, we've heard that many times. But words are what God uses to convey truth. Jesus is the word made manifest and dwelt among us. We are to use words to communicate this message. Words change lives. The gospel is a message of truth. It tells us that we are sinners by nature and there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. So Get over yourself. If you keep trying to please God with your performance, you're going to utterly fail. And in the end, you're going to suffer the consequences of your failures, your sins. But if you release yourself from that and say, I'm at the bottom. I'm just looking up. God, you sent your son Christ to die for me on the cross. I received the work that Jesus did on my behalf. Now I'm set free. I'm set free from this rat race of performing to be good enough for God. I can't do it. But he did. He did. And so he offers to me his righteousness. Freely. It cost him everything, but he offers it to me freely. That's the whole idea of grace. So I receive it by grace. And now I am his child. And I have a hope that endures throughout eternity. I have everlasting life, a gift given to me. I become his child, his son, his daughter. I am infused and given his Holy Spirit to live within me. There are a thousand things that happen to you when you become his child. Many of which you don't even know about. You can't even enter into. But the ones that we do know. Just blow us away to think that my identity is now rooted in Jesus, not in me and my performance in what I get, what I acquire, how I achieve. But my identity, my self-worth, my significance comes from my union with Christ alone. If I really dwell on that, it settles me. It centers me. It focuses me in a way that glorifies God and sets me free. Okay, so in our passage today, I promise I won't go too long with this, but that was the introduction. I'm going to set up my clock here, so I'm just making sure that I'm on time. In our passage today, Elijah is called to confront this evil king, Ahab. And it says of Ahab that he did more evil in the sight of the Lord than all who were before him. God's not pleased with the northern kingdom with Ahab, and he wants to send his messenger to confront him. And in chapter 17, that's exactly what he does. In verse 1, he's called to Say to Elijah, I mean to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, 
Surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. That's kind of all he says. But but think about what he just did. He's telling Elijah, I mean Ahab in essence, that it's not going to rain. You're going to experience a tremendous famine. And as Dan pointed out last week, it may have been that Ahab said, yeah, right. You're telling me you can control the rain. But as time went on, he began to put the puzzle together and realize, I think there's something to this. The rivers dried up. The lakes dried up. All the vegetation became parched and dried up. The land became arid. The cattle began to, to, to die, and, and he's desperate trying to find water holes for the cattle to drink. And he's realizing this is true. Whatever this guy said was true. But look, look at what a, Elijah says. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. He's introducing again to this king who had gotten so far off track that the Lord, Yahweh, is the God of Israel, and he has spoken. And Dan talked to us a little bit what Lord, all in caps, suggests or is defined. And, and the, the scriptures tell us that it was first recorded when he talked to Moses at the burning bush. He revealed himself as the I am. I am has spoken. I am who I am. And when you go to the people, tell them, I am has sent you. God reveals himself. Friends, we need, we need to share with the world around us who our God is. Because we have lost perspective as a culture and even as the church of Jesus Christ, who it is that we're dealing with here, Yahweh, in that name, we see one who is self-existent, eternal. I am eternal present, tense. He's never been without. He's relational. I am has sent you. So he's involved in human affairs. He's got a mission from Moses to perform. He is with us, present, not disconnected, in that burning bush, in the presence of God's people. And he's unchanging. I am who I am. Does our culture need to hear that? Our God does not change. He is wholly other than us. We can't understand him. He is a mystery in some ways because his mind is so far beyond ours. And yet, he desires that we pursue him. And if we do, he lets us find him because he loves us. And he is a covenant-keeping God. All of this is found in this term, Yahweh, I am who I am. But notice the severity of the message that Elijah brings to Ahab. No dew or rain. That's going to cause a quick halt, a cessation of life, everything as they knew it. As the Lord God of Israel lives, Elijah testifies to his relationship with God. 
He says, before whom I stand. Now, as we go out into the world with our message of the gospel, we go out of a relationship with God. As Elijah was close to God in his presence, so we too are to stand before him and to walk in his ways as his children. There's a wonderful passage I'm just going to refer you to for later. It's Ephesians chapter 5. And it talks about how the Christian is to live. And in living like this, as imitators of God, walking in love, the power of God is manifest in us and through us. Without that consistent walk before God, we don't really have much to offer. People see right through it. They call us hypocrites because we are not teaching and preaching in love because we're not walking the life of Christ. He calls us to be imitators of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. And part of modeling God to people is to admit that we aren't to be real in our communication with folk. But as God has called us to him, we stand before him, living this life out before him, and therefore we have the incentive to reach out to the world around us. Notice here that the target audience is Ahab, the king. Not exactly the kind of person that you want to bring your message to. It was a difficult message to bring one of famine that was to come. And... Um, I'm sure that Elijah would have rather had somebody else deliver that message. We sometimes don't want to share the gospel with others, nor do we want to confront a brother or a sister who's not living according to the gospel. We would rather have someone else do it. It's not fun to necessarily speak the truth, even if it's in love, because we know that it's going to hurt us or it's going to hurt the person that we're going to share with. I know that when I have a difficult task before me, oftentimes I'll talk about it, I'll think about it, I'll write about it, I'll discuss it with my wife, I'll dance around it like a guy who's getting ready to dive into a cold pool, you know, but, you know, just kind of think, do I really want to do this? Is there another way to get in? Can I just put my toe in and, and go in gradually? The bottom line is you just have to do it, right? You just have to take the plunge. Obedience to the calling of God is like taking the plunge. If he has called us to share this gospel, to be light of the world, salt of the earth, ambassadors for Christ, and he has, then we just have to do it. It's obedience that's required here. To dive into the pool. And it's not easy. I'm sure that although the text doesn't indicate that Elijah wrestled with his command to go and speak to Ahab. Oftentimes the Bible doesn't tell us about the wrestlings of a person with a command of God. Like when Abraham was told, go offer your son Isaac in the land of Moriah to the mount, on the mountain that I'll show you doesn't tell us about the night before and during which 
he agonized over this command. It just says in the morning, he got up, he saddled his donkey, he got his supplies, and they took off for the mountain. And you think, how could he do that? He'd been waiting 25 years for this promise to be fulfilled and the giving of a son. And now he's just going to go off. Doesn't he have any feelings? Well, obedience is so often against everything we feel. It's not comfortable. And and frankly, we want to be comfortable, right? We, We want life to be as easy as possible. But obedience to the word of God is not easy. That's why Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. And James tells us, faith without works is dead. You say you have faith and I have works. I'll show you my faith by the works I do. So works always follow a genuine faith. And that is demonstrated through obedience. Elijah, I'm sure, wrestled with his command, but he went anyway. And he was on his way. And who does he meet? This prophet Obadiah. A kindred spirit. Obadiah falls at his feet and he says, Master, is it really you? You know, well, what, what's he saying here? Like, is it really you? Of, of course it's him. He probably saw him from a distance. Elijah was characterized by this leather belt, this hairy coat, and long hair. I mean, if you think about how John the Baptist is described, that's. Elijah, and that's why John the Baptist is called the Elijah of the New Testament. He is like the prophet. They were not only simple men who prophesied the word of God, but they did it with power. And and so, yes, he knew it was Elijah. However, he demonstrates his love like for three and a half years. They had been looking for this guy and they couldn't find him. The king has set out edicts to all the nations around. If you see him, return him to me. Nobody could find him. Why? God was hiding Elijah. But Obadiah recognizes him and he falls at his feet and he says, Master, is it really you? I can't believe that I'm actually seeing the one whom the king and everyone else has been looking for. Finally. And he says, you you know me. I'm the one that hid the hundred prophets of God when Ahab's wife Jezebel went on her rampage and killed all the prophets of God. I'm a good guy. I'm on your side. He knows he is. There's a connection there. And so he and Obadiah are kindred spirits. And he tells Obadiah, go and tell your master, the king, that I'm here to see him. And of course, Obadiah says, wait, 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 wait a minute. (laughs) We've gone through this before. Every time that someone has said, I see him, when the king comes and finds that he's not there, that person is executed. Don't make me do this, please. Finally, Elijah says, listen, this time is for real. I'm going to do it. So, He's greeted by Obadiah with joy and respect and honor. And then he comes to Ahab. And how is he greeted? You troubler of Israel. Is that you, Elijah? 
What's he saying? Again, he's not questioning Elijah's identity. He knows exactly who he is. You're the one to blame for the most severe famine in Israel's history. You caused this, this catastrophic consequences of your decision to stop the windows of heaven. You said that the famine would not subside except by your own word. So you could have done something during these three and a half years to avert all this calamity. And you chose not to. I mean, that's sort of what he's saying. We read this and we're like, doesn't he get it? You know, of course, we see it from the perspective of the written record. We get it because it's narrated. But but sometimes we don't get it in our own lives. We we just connect the consequences with whoever is bringing the message to us. Right. They're they're delivering the consequences, the judgment. And, and that's what we resist. He does not acknowledge the God of heaven, Yahweh, who is holy. He does not believe or consider that his choices, I'm talking about Ahab now, the systematic establishment of the worship of Baals had anything to do with the famine. He blames Elijah for his own failures and the subsequent judgment. There are consequences when a people refuse to acknowledge God and give thanks. When they turn a hard heart toward humanity, whether it be the unborn or the children at our borders. There are and will be consequences when we as a culture promote and exalt evil as good and good as evil. There are consequences, whether we're Israel or Sidon or any other country surrounding. There are consequences when we fail to acknowledge Yahweh and we work hard at removing him systematically from the land and setting up and erecting other gods to take his place. There are consequences. His voice is silenced, but he is not put to rest. He's saying, in essence, Elijah's response to Ahab, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. In other words, let's get this straight, King Ahab. You have brought all this trouble upon yourself and upon this nation. You are to blame for the famine. You are to blame for the destruction of the crops, for the death of the livestock and people, because of your moral choices. Yes, moral choices have physical consequences. And again, we live in an age and culture where people are suffering the consequences of removing God from our thinking of placing ourselves upon the throne and thinking that we can define truth any way that we want it to be defined. By choosing to worship the bales of this world, erecting the idols and gods that will tell us exactly what we want to hear and embrace our lifestyle, instead of saying, God, what's right in your eyes? Let me please you, because that's all that matters. Yeah, we, we live in a world where there is suffering and not 
All that we see is a result of our personal sin. We live in a fallen world. And that has consequences itself. But we also choose to sin. And my choice to sin will always have consequences. Those consequences are actually an act of mercy and grace by loving God. Understand that. Because as long as we're alive and those consequences come and we feel the pain, there is still time to change, right? We can repent. We can choose to do it God's way, to submit to the Lordship of Christ. But there will come a time when the opportunity to change will pass when we stand before our Maker. We are seeing the consequences in a devastating way. Confusion, loneliness, anxiety, hopelessness, depression, despair, suicide. Being experienced at epidemic rates. It's the highest cause of death among 15 to 19 year olds. Among older men, 65 and up, it's called the silent epidemic. Because 49 out of a thousand... Of 100,000 men are choosing to commit suicide. And the reasons given by those who study this are physical illness, cognitive impairment, stress, uh, dealing with retirement, social disconnectedness, all kinds of things that sort of are peripheral to the true issue of not being right with God, not possessing peace. That comes through Jesus Christ. And yet you and I have this privilege today as those who have been entrusted with this message is to meet people at their point of need. To come to a culture that is suffering. A culture made up of individuals like the person next door who you're thinking about right now. You can bring light to that person. It might be your own child. It might be your neighbor. What do you bring? You bring them the gospel, the good news that the, we have been shown by God that we are sinful and that we have failed. We are sinners. We miss the mark. We are helpless to heal ourselves. There's nothing we can do. But God, because of his love for us, has sent his son to die in our place. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. That's what this world really needs. But again, we're like bears in a trap. And all we can think about is trying to get out. But we grin, we bare our teeth and growl at the person that's trying to to help us. We don't understand as a people. And so it's our job as those who are servants of God and ambassadors for Christ to bring this message of hope to those who are in need. What do I suggest? Build a relationship with that person next door. Ask them about their story. Bryce and Phyllis did something interesting. They invited all the people in their neighborhood, well, not all of them, probably three on each side, to come for a sort of party at their house, a cookout. 
And then Bryce just asked the simple question, tell us how you came to this neighborhood. What led you here? And he said, people went on and on and on all evening. They wanted to tell their story. It was a simple time of getting to know each other. Neighbors that he hadn't ever gotten to know before. But now the door was open. And there may be opportunities in the future for additional conversations. Listen to people. Actively listen to people. Don't assume you know their story. Don't jump to conclusions and and get ready to tell yours. Just ask questions. Let them know that they're heard and they're understood and that you care. And then go back and pray for them. You know, maybe not with them, but pray for them. God, what can I do? How can I build a relationship? He'll show you. He will show you. He will guide you. The fact that you're reaching out is his will. And you will be used by God in your own way, with your own style, to care for a person. And perhaps you can share your story of how you came from hopelessness and despair to knowing Christ and having peace with God. We come to the table today and we're reminded of this gospel message, a message that has changed our lives, has given us hope, made us children of God, granted us eternal life, And it's all because of the one person in this room whom we cannot see, the Lord Jesus. He's here. He promised to be present wherever two or three are gathered in his name. And we celebrate his death and his burial and resurrection on our behalf. He died so that we might live. I mean really live, right? Not just eternal life, but eternal life beginning right now with your identity united with Christ. You are complete because of what Jesus did. Christ has given us authority to confront the world with their greatest need, the need of the gospel. He has provided everything good for us. He has equipped us. Now he says, go into all the world. And preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all these words used to communicate everything that I have commanded. And remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That's his command to us. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you We'll perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God bless you and go in peace.